So one of the things that I'm endlessly coaching heads of product on and product management folks in general is the language we use, okay? It turns out when you talk to an executive team, particularly a sales-led enterprise team, right? Nobody cares about sprints and nobody cares about story points and nobody cares about agile and nobody cares about tech debt and nobody cares about infrastructure and nobody cares about security or scalability until we run out. The language of the executive team is money. You're listening to GTM Disrupted with Mike Smart of Egress Solutions. Learn how product management and product marketing thought leaders are rethinking their business strategies to thrive in a world of radical change. Hi, my name is Mike Smart and welcome to Go to Market Disrupted. Today I have Rich Marinoff with me. Rich is the CEO of Marinoff Consulting, a role that he's held for more than 20 years. You know, when I think about Rich, I can't help but say this. I think about the fact Rich is probably one of the smartest people I know in the software industry in terms of product management, product leadership, and the business of software. So today we're here to get some of his insights, his observations about product leadership, how it is evolved, and explore a couple of hypotheses, one of which I would pose at the beginning that says, as a product leadership role, the product executive role become really a lot more complicated and a lot harder than it used to be. And also, if so, then why? Why is that? Rich's background through his consulting company coaches product executives, product management teams, and revenue organizations in terms of how to run better product organizations and how to change the dynamic in the business. Rich has been the product guy at six startups, including a role as CEO, CPO, VP of product management. I know Rich from his work around blogging. I know he's a relentless blogger. He's on the speaking tour and speaks frequently on topics such as product leadership, product executive. He is also a teacher and a mentor on software strategy. And what I like to say is that he's also someone who boils things down. It's the simple alignment of what can we build with what the market will, will pay for. And so with that, Rich, thank you for joining us today. Appreciate you being here. And I want to say appreciate it and looking forward to the conversation. Great. Thanks, Mike. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I gave a real quick thumbnail to your background. I think for those of you, those of the audience that aren't familiar with you, it'd be interesting to hear some of your own journey, some of your own description of your journey and how you've come to the place where you are in the industry. Sure. I hung out my, my shingle as a, as a consultant in 2001. That had a lot to do with the fact that the markets all went to zero just after 9-11. And I found myself not at any of the startups that I had been at recently. I think probably the, the, the couple of interesting bits there, one is o over those consulting years. So that's more than 20 years of, of being a, a product consultant, product leader. I've done, I think, 15 sets of interim VP, interim chief product officer. So that's parachuting into a company that either forgot to have somebody running product or misplaced the last few or doesn't know why they fired the last couple. A whole series of, we call them the smoke jumper jobs, right? So come in for a couple of quarters, straighten things out and hire my replacement. And that's really been a, a, a laboratory for me of what works, how to deal with different kinds of executive teams, squeezing you know, improvement and results out quickly because I'm not going to be there that long. And, uh, you know, if we, if we think about the startups just for a minute, of my six startups, four of them we file under 
good life lessons and character building. So still the odds are, are in my favor here, but where you do all the learning is where it doesn't work out the way you thought. I think an excellent point. Um, with that experience, 15 scenarios where you've jumped in behind enemy lines, so to speak, <laughs> if you want to use that, or behind a fire line. Yeah, really, I was um, thinking about the firefighters, but yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but the fire, firefighting idea, especially when they forgot to hire a CPO as they were growing. What have you seen change in terms of those types of engagements? Uh, I'm sure it's been different over the long haul, but what do you see that's most recently showing up in those kind of environments? Yeah, I think if, if we go way back, you know, a decade or two back, much of the emphasis, much of the focus was on, can we get stuff shipping, right? Can we get product and design and engineering working together better to get more done, right? Which I think is actually not where the leverage is. Uh, the, the last decade or so, it's been much more about, I think, grappling with the fundamentals of the company economics. Are we building products that are going to make money as we scale? Looking at the organization as a whole, is sales and implementation or customer support or success aligned with marketing, aligned with product and engineering? Usually we find that there's a, well, often I find a fist fight between the folks on the sales side who want to sell whatever exactly our enterprise customer wants, whether we have it or not, the implementation team that's going to build whatever they think the customer wants, whether it's supportable or not, or if it's our architecture, and the product engineering team, which is trying to do something repeatable and scalable and supportable for hundreds or thousands of customers. When we end up in the swamp of nine customers, each have their own code lines, each have their own extensions, and we can't upgrade anything we've done because no two customers have the same use pattern or code. So, you know, over these years, I've seen product really come to the table more with fundamental organizational company level stuff. You know, how, how are we going to grow and make money and succeed as a group instead of the, the sort of narrower, you know, myopic, can we write more user stories faster? Right. That's, that's an excellent observation. I'm curious. Because when you come into this situation, you don't have a long time to one, prove your value or to show impact and results. What are you relying on then to make, make the impression you want to make as quickly as you possibly can? How, talk about how you go about. Sure. Something to remember is nobody calls me when things are going well. Right. And, and almost nobody calls me the first time they put somebody into that job. You know, th this, this is usually something pretty serious. This is a dumpster fire. This is a really, you know, critical condition problem or, or, or there's some other solution. So I actually have some advantages here because there may not be a fallback, right? If they don't want me to do my work, okay, I'm happy to leave, but that doesn't solve the problem. The other thing I see is that usually it's big, obvious organizational issues rather than small technical stuff. There was a group I worked with where the, the general consensus around the executive team was that engineering never shipped anything. And, and so on the Monday when I arrived, I started talking to everybody and, you know, listening on the listening tour, what's broken. And by Thursday, early Friday, I sat down with the VP of engineering and asked him if we could ship anything at all on Friday or Monday. And we, we found a few things and engineering dropped a shipment on Monday. 
which was great because it moved the conversation from yes. we can't do anything. Right. Everybody asked the right question then, which is, well, why did you ship those things instead of the ones I wanted? Which, by the way, is the product problem, not the engineering yes. problem. So, so when we get to the you ship something, but it wasn't what I wanted priority question. Now, now what I'm bringing to the table matters. Right. The, the other thing I see over and over again is I see organizations that want to be repeatable, scalable product companies, but they're real in the enterprise space. They're really services companies. So we have a, we have a shell or a platform or some set of technical bits and, and capabilities, but for every customer, every client, we end up turning that into something special and wonderful and bespoke. And if you're in that business, you're not in the software product business. Do, do you think that some of that has become more balanced now that we have pre-built, pre-ordained infrastructure for things like SaaS? We have the AWS cloud, we have the, G, the, the Google cloud. We have, we have all of these tools that sort of enable us to become, from a technical standpoint, more scalable. And I'm curious if you've seen that have an impact on the problem you described in terms of building small little bits of releases for a small group of customers. You know, I'd love to say that I've seen that change. I haven't seen nearly as much as I would like to. And, and what, what you're describing is the bottom up tool set, right? It's the top down problem that I see more, which is, okay, we just signed this huge bank and everybody knows their name and they want us to integrate with some systems we've never seen before. They want us to add some fields to our database. They want us to change the way reporting runs. And it's a, and in the enterprise space, they're big enough that they might be one of our top seven or three revenue customers. And every one of those things is a mistake if we can't reuse it for 20 more customers. So, so the pressure, the absolute pressure from the board and the CEO and the sales team to do whatever it is that that next enterprise customer wants it is usually not at the infrastructure level. It's usually at some integration adaptation that we're eager to do because the money is shiny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you see it if you were to zoom out and look uh -huh. at product management role, product management leadership role? Right. How do you, how do you, how do you tackle that? I think, so the product management leader around it, first of all, I, I insist that I'm reporting to the CEO, right? There's no layering under engineering or anything else, right? This is important. I think of that product person, the product leader who has the least staff of anybody in the company and the least budget of anybody in the company, and honestly, the least authority of anybody in the company really becomes the, the coach or the mentor for the executive team as a whole to get aligned around something that's going to work. Would you call that strategy? I Maybe. might. I might. Sometimes it's strategy. Often it's, it's misaligned execution, right? Okay. So we've agreed on our strategy, but each department actually is following its own local goals. So sales is selling regardless of what we sell. Customer success implementation is implementing the, the quickest, quickest possible thing, regardless of the long-term implications. Marketing is often misaligned with sales because they're trying to get high volumes of leads when the sales folks really want a small number of big leads and product and engineering are trying to do something repeatable that nobody else, everybody else sort of says they agree with, but when it comes time to decide if we're going to let a customer go because they don't want the thing we built, 
That's a really, really hard conversation. So it's a flinch test that most people fail. It, it is. Most people fail. So, so as the product leader, I have to be ready to come into almost every meeting or, or preempted by tackling the sales team before they get to that meeting. I have to come into every meeting to reiterate and repeat what our strategy actually is and whether this deal or opportunity matches our strategy. And most importantly, what we're going to have to throw out of the cart if we're going to pick up all that work that this new client seems to want, almost all of which is what was, what was in the strategy, right? So, so playing um, a little bit of the devil's advocate. Yep. Cause I, I want to, I want to explore this. Good. The, the CEO of an organization obviously has a massive role in this. Yes. He or she sets the tone of tenor. How do you avoid having this be, I'm going to use my term, career limiting as a CPO. Sure. And play this role out, the, even though you're representing the greater good of the organization. Yep, sure. It's not popular. It's so, not so popular. I, I, am, the, you, I am the naysayer. How do you do that room. dance? How do, how, right. What would you give advice about doing that dance? Sure. Yeah. So, so first of all, if, if I'm interim, if I'm going to be there for two quarters and they've already run through the obvious alternatives, honestly, I don't care if they fire me. Right. right. So I, I have the great privilege of telling them what's true and doing what needs to be done and not, and not having any a care in the world about whether I'm staying because I'm not. So but that's, that works. You're, you're a high paid free agent. That works right? for me, but it doesn't you're, work for the person that I'm going to pull in behind me. Exactly. I right, was going to say right. you, you're, 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 a, you're, you're a less handed knuckleball pitcher that comes in to get the team to the world series and your contract is up that's November exactly right. 1st, no matter what. Right. So, so, so one of the things that I'm endlessly coaching heads of product on and product management folks in general is the language we use. Okay. It turns out when you talk to an executive team, particularly a sales-led enterprise team, right? Nobody cares about sprints and nobody cares about story points and nobody cares about agile and nobody cares about tech debt and nobody cares about infrastructure and nobody cares about security or scalability until we run out, right? The language of the executive team is money. Yes. And so, so a lot of my coaching is how to take the thing we know we have to do and express it in short, very short sentences that have a currency symbol at the front, right? A an example here is to say, of course, we could build that special reporting framework that JP Morgan Chase tells us they're going to want if they sign the million dollar contract. But, and the, and the but's important, we're going to have to postpone the scale up that we planned and postpone version six of our platform and, and doesn't matter yet until I say, and we have 20 million in commitments from customers who are waiting for version six upgrade. And we're going to lose most of them if we postpone this another year. So, and if you don't lose them, you're going to stall them off. For sure. Right. Two, right. Which has massive impact. Right. Right. Financial but, impact. Right. right. But, but until I, until I quote a number with a dollar sign on it, honestly, nobody's listening. Right. And nobody's I, listening. Right. So, so I, I'll share a, I'll share an anecdote with you. Small one. Vinya, mm -hmm. I'm working with a set of clients right now, teaching some principles around connecting roadmap and planning to ROI. Yes. I'm going across a large sector of different mid-market product executives. A few of them totally get it and saying, where have you been? I've been living and wanting to talk like this forever. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of them, this is totally new territory. Right. Speaking the language that you're speaking about, putting dollar signs, putting market implications, putting competitive implications in terms of everything that's on a roadmap, everything that's in the backlog. Give us some sage wisdom about how to prepare for that. I know you coach in that area. Yeah. But maybe I want to take a vitamin or a supplement and start working sure. up for this before I talk to you. Right. So, so things, things that I know happen. I, I joke a lot about a syndrome called roadmap amnesia. Okay. And, and the cause of roadmap amnesia, which is where everything that everybody's told you about the roadmap is wiped from your brain, right? The, the proximate cause is a phone call from a big customer, right? Yes. And the big customer says, I need X, right? right? And, and usually they threaten you with something, right? Non-renewal or something, right? And at that moment, everything we've talked about that, that is in the pipeline, that's in the roadmap, that's on the commitment list is wiped from your brain. And so it is because this no, is the right. one you need to close, right? First prize is a Cadillac, second prize, steak knives, third prize, you're fired. Right? So the coaching I start with is before we engage in your new request, even talk about it, let me recap the three most important things on the roadmap, the big ones, the ones that have money attached to them mm -hmm. and say, we have this huge upgrade coming or a migration to the cloud. And we've promised the board that there's 30 to $60 million in this migration when we finish it. Okay. And every quarter we push it back is 5 million that we didn't get. Right. The second thing on the roadmap is internationalization and localization because we're attacking a bunch of new markets that aren't English language speaking and, and sales has agreed that there's 10 to $20 million against this. Okay. Right. Maybe there's one more. And now, now we can actually have a useful discussion that says, do we want to postpone those specific three things? We're not talking in general. We're not BSing about backlogs because nobody cares. Right. Say we don't have any, engineers sitting around eating bonbons and playing Fortnite, they're all busy, right? There, there's no slack here. So the word or comes up as in we can continue to work on the roadmap stuff, or we can sacrifice one of these very three specific major programs that we've announced to the world to do this other thing you want us to do. And at that point I back off and say, you know, it's a CEO call. It's about money, but but if we framed it right, we've reminded everybody why the three big things on the roadmap matter to the company, right? Scrub all the, the code names. Nobody remembers what Project Thor is anyway, right? Use plain language that says 60% of our customers are waiting for this set of features or upgrades or capabilities, and they're going to walk, and that's going to cost us $50 million. Egress Solutions is a high-touch product growth and market success consultancy. Since 2009, Egress Solutions has had successful engagements with the top technology organizations, delivering insights into buyer preferences, product market fit, product management, and go-to market excellence. Egress Solutions accelerates top-line growth and market success for our clients. Go to www.egresssolutions.net to learn more. So I want to pause. You've given us a lot to work with in mm -hmm. 10 minutes or so we've been talking and not to insult anybody, but I want to just kind of synthesize what I'm hearing. So one of the things I'm hearing is product executives must 
learn how to speak more than one language, more than the language of engineering, technology, and software. Principal primary language that would be useful then would be speak the language of finance and the language of business finance. That's number one. Yes. Number two, I'm hearing you say that embedded in what you said is massive insight about the marketplace and customers as specific as you can get it so that you have some ways to weigh the incoming thing that's good that's coming in. I keep going back to war metaphors. You want to use fire metaphors. The incoming sweep of a firestorm right. that, that to weigh that against the other things that have already been pre-established and pre-committed as priority. The absence of those disciplines, if I'm a product executive and I don't know my marketplace and I don't know that language of finance and business, you're saying I'm in trouble. I, I am saying you're in trouble. That's right. And, and the reason you're in trouble is because almost everything that comes out of your mouth isn't really of interest to the go-to-market side right? Schedules, well, we're always late anyway, and you guys never ship on time, right? You know, there's nobody in the universe who cares about story points. There's nobody in the universe who cares about epics versus, you know, whatever's. It's about customer value translated into money. And if we don't do that, then we're, we're on our, we're sitting on our heels. We're on our back legs here. And, and sales always wins the argument. Absolutely. If, if, if product doesn't show up with equivalently sized arguments or weaponry. You still may lose if you show up. That's fine. And, and there are some, and there are some deals that, that, so, so sales is often right, but I find that sales is not usually right. Yes. So, yes. so, and actually let me, let me back up to one other piece of, of sort of psychology here, if I might, if you're on the go to market side, you mostly live one account at a time, one deal at a time, one implementation at a time, one license at a time, one renewal at a time, and you're not paid to think about the broad impact on the company, right? In fact, you're dissuaded, right? If right. you don't close the deal, you're fired. Um, on the engineering product side, we live with the cumulative impact of all of the deals we've signed and all of the implementations we've done and all the specials we've built and all the price plans that we did just for one customer, right? And that quickly fills up the entire capacity of the engineering organization because we have to support every damn line we've ever sold, every line of code we've ever sold to any customer, we have to be available to fix. So, so the economics of selling one set of bits a hundred times or selling to different customers a hundred different sets of things is about whether our investors are going to fire us or we're going to IPO. So. Yeah. So, you know, you don't come to the gunfight with a knife, right? Right. So one of the things that you hit on is go to market scenario. By the way, I have the benefit of knowing you long enough to know that this is the way you've been communicating this role since I've known you. And that's Decades. Going back to yeah. We don't have to date ourselves. Anyway, yes, it's a long time. Do you find that that message resonates better now than it did say, 15 years ago or even 20 years ago? I do, although, again, I, I see a split here. If if the company doesn't have executives who have really solid positive experience previously with strong product management leaders, they don't know what good looks like and they don't know mm. what they're shopping for. And one of the reasons I get called, actually the major reason I get called, is that the executive team puts somebody in the head of product job or the CPO job who's never been a product manager. It happens everywhere. 
They put fatal salespeople mistake. in. Yeah. Fatal mistake. They put engineering leads in. They put sales yes. leads in. They, there's somebody who's not working out in their current job, and how hard could the product thing be, right? And it, like every other job at the executive level, you actually have to have time and grade and know what you're doing. And and well, and, go ahead. I was just going to say, the most critical. I can think of two or three jobs where you might you might be able to get away with sort of learning how to be an executive in the role. I won't name them because people would say I'm wrong. I would say there are also two jobs I would say I wouldn't want somebody to learn how to do the job. Product management executive job is probably the hardest one of that group because there, there's so many things you can try and grab. And to you said it earlier, smallest staff, smallest budget, smallest amount of influence. So yes. learning on that job is very it is. And, 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 and when, I, when I unpack this with execs, uh, I say, well, what's the very first question you'd ask somebody before you let them run your sales team? And, and the answer is, well, they've sold a bunch of stuff and they know how to carry a bag, right? What's the first question you ask of somebody who's a CFO candidate? Well, they can tell how much money is in the bank. They can do payroll and they can raise, they can do the paperwork to raise money, right? If you were going to hire an engineering VP, you'd like one who's actually written some software sometime in their life. Those are obvious, but somehow the product job seems trivial or easy, or we need a subject expert, or my nephew isn't working out in the junior job he's in, right? And, and so, so many places I go, the, the product leader job has been a disastrous hire for completely, totally predictable reasons. I want you to sort of switch gears. Talk to the C-suite people that that product leadership team sort of sits with. Your CEO, what should you be looking for? You've got, I'm going to create a, you've got a mid-sized company. Uh -huh. Right on the cusp of $100 million. You've been there. You've got this. Business is working. Multiple products. Uh -huh. And you just, and you have a scale plan for exit. You want a strategic exit. Right. What should you be looking for from your point of view in your next CPO hire? What are the essentials? What are the critical things? And what sure. are the critical is they've run a product team of roughly the same size as the one they're going to run here. So if you got six product managers and three designers or whatever's in that group, right? It's not their first time. Generally, if you overscope here and you get somebody who is running a team of a thousand, they really don't want the job and they don't do it anyway. But somebody of, of a sort of similar scale in the product space, again, overemphasizing that. Second, I would say at $100 million, you should be worrying mostly about scaling issues and what I would call sales velocity. So not can we close every single deal, but what can we do to close more deals faster? Because we need to close 500 of them this quarter or however many it is. So somebody who, who talks about the friction in the selling and marketing and deployment and implementation cycle and how product and engineering can smooth over the next hundred customers so we can sign them faster and collect money faster. Um, and then usually the third thing is somebody who can talk cogently to a CEO in non-technical terms about why we're gonna spend roughly half of all of our engineering money and time on things that customers didn't ask for by name. So. All of the platforming and all of the tech debt and all of the architecture, if we don't put roughly half of all of our engineering into that, we're mortgaging the future and we're out of business in four quarters. 
And you're speaking specifically of making sure that debt and sustaining activities do not become a disproportionate side of the engineering effort. No, I'm actually worried the other, I'm worried about the other direction, which is that we have eight big deals to close this quarter. Every enterprise deal always has this short list of 25 things they each want, 50, 100, right? Mm -hmm. And so just for this one quarter, just for this one month, we're going to take everyone off of sustaining, off of tech debt, off of architecture, off of security, off of scalability, and we're going to put them on these one-off features that our big customers need just this one time. Now, it turns out that's habit forming. And and so we end up spending 20% on keeping the wheels on the wagon instead of 40 or 50, and then the wheels fall off the wagon in a very predictable way. And every one of our new big enterprise customers is all PO'd at us because we can't deliver the things we said, right? I'm almost And you never... can't scale with them either when they That's start right. looking for ways to extend and give you more share of wallet. You're not there That's right. to show up with the right capabilities, the right solution. Right. I rarely find a CEO who's over-investing in the technology, who's over-investing in the infrastructure and the architecture. That's just not how it goes. And, and, in, and in fairness, having been a CEO, I know that the board members are each calling the CEO no more than, let's say, once a day each to ask how revenue is going and how the 10 biggest deals are going. There's tremendous pressure on the CEO to just this one time skip all of the, all of the back office work. And then if we do it once, we do it twice, we do it three times. It's a habit. Well, you said it's habit. For me. It is one of the, the highest addictive drugs I've seen in business, right? Because the engineers are good at turning and pivoting and delivering and hey, they did it once, they can do it again. Right. Yes. Yeah. So if you were sort of sifting through tea leaves or looking at a a global crystal ball or trying to see around corners, what's coming? What do you see that's playing out in our space that you think is worth noting, worth paying attention to, has strong signal strength? Right. Talk a little bit right. about some of the things that you see happening. So every conversation I've had in the last three months included the question about AI. Of course. Of course. And I worked on AI in the 70s. Sorry to date myself. But, um, you did, but that's and it, okay. I, <laughs> and, and no, it didn't work then. What, what I'm seeing, I think, it is what's classic in technology adoption, which is on the one hand, the, we're at the very, very top of the hype cycle. And every single person is pretty sure that they can AI enable every bit of their applications and replace all their people. And it's almost all not going to work, right? But in the long term, it's going to be really important, right? Right. The, the, um, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed, right? Yes. Gibson. So, so here's, here's what I think of when people want to talk about AI, I break it into three portions, right? So one is, could you use some AI tools that are generic to improve some of your internal cost structure? You know, could you make tech support less expensive? It's generic. It's internal. Nobody cares on the outside. There may be some good tools here. You can run it as an experiment, right? The second one is, couldn't we just make all of our customer-facing features AI enabled? I think most of those are destined for failure, partly because this is really hard to build and most problems don't actually fit the large language models or the machine learning don't, they don't fit very well. And so we're imagining all kinds of things that, sorry, edit. We're imagining all kinds of things that 
we would like to work, but don't fit the tools, right? And having a couple of folks who've been down the AI road a few times, we could shoot down, we could eliminate 85% of all the suggestions as just not making any sense, right? And, and focus. Uh, but the third one where the value is, if I might, is if your company has a, a huge proprietary data set, right? We know more about the prescriptions that, that patients are ordering than anybody. We know more about when machines fail in the field than anybody. If you have a proprietary set of data that's big enough to train some AI stuff, you might actually be able to create a unique and defensible feature. Uh, other than that, it's going to be generic. Everybody's going to have it. It'll be last week's Bitcoin. You, you mentioned the last thing you said was one thing that I've had a couple people offer, at least one who has been, I'm going to say cautiously optimistic about the AI initiative. Mm -hmm. When everyone enables, pick a, a group of companies that are in, you pick the space, CRM space, right. marketing automation space, anything you want. When everyone enables the same functionality, there is no competitive advantage for AI anymore. It just, it just stepped up to the, it's That's like right. saying we do big data. Nobody cares. Right. We do analytics. Nobody mm -hmm. cares. Right. So I, I think that you're right about the hype cycle. If I were to ask you to sort of look at this as a, as a role in role, not your interim, you're in the job for the long yep. term, mm -hmm. you're a CPO and it's a two year, even five year horizon for you. What do you, what are your priorities right now? Generically, assuming that there's no fires going on, you sure. put all the fires out. What do you, what do you wow. priority and what do you focus on? I'm trying to remember the last time I put all the fires out. I think <laughs> so. So. I'm usually thinking about the, the 12 to 24 to 30 month timeline, right? Wh what are we going to build in the next year or year and a half that's really going to make a, a big impact in the market, right? Because it's easy to fill the next year with, with placeholders, right? right? And it's easy to let the next year leak away in lots of special things that are only 10 lines of code. How hard could they be? We're just going to fit it into this week's sprint, right? The challenge with the 12 to 24 to 30 month thing is we're usually wrong, mm -hmm. right? Good data. I have some, there's a lot of other things that say projects or products or efforts in that time frame fail 70, 80% of the time, 50 to 90, you choose your number, right? And so the thing that's probably most important for me is to establish early on a frequent habitual weekly customer inter interview or discovery session for every one of my product managers. And most importantly, those sales calls don't qualify as those. Okay. So every single member of my team is going to have a call every week with a real person who pays us money or a real person who uses our software, not any intermediates, not right. Nobody right. in between. And so in the course of a year, we're actually going to start to learn what really matters what customers really want that's much deeper than the notes in Salesforce. Mm -hmm. And, and you, that doesn't happen in a quarter and may not happen in two quarters, but if I have a year, you'll I, see an I, impact. You'll see an impact see and change. And we start, what we start to see after that is that we place better bets because we're betting and yeah. more of the things we ship matter and more of the things we ship make money and more of the things we ship make customers happy and joyful. And that's about, it's about getting at the very, very beginning of the cycle, right? 
not. I know you know this, but I want to offer this as also an an adjunct to what you're saying. And the confidence of the team at that point and the credibility of the team soared, which means you now have the credibility and the influence that we talked about was missing from most product leader roles. Yes, yes. And so, you know, Teresa Torres is somebody that I think she's 20 times as smart as I am and her book's a gem. And she's really leading a lot of thought around getting out ahead of the coding. I think there's a lot of ways you could make your engineering team 5% faster in development. But if you could eliminate the half or the 70% of things that we build that are worthless, well, you'd get three times out of your engineering team without having to hire anybody. Absolutely right. And, and again, notice that's the language of money, because if we're going to get permission from the CEO to try a bunch of these experiments, which are risky and are likely to fail, and we're going to be able to hold back the sales pressure for just a little while to try some new things, the CEO has to be on my side. And therefore, we have to make a clear economic argument for why this is going to matter to anybody. No, well said, well said. Rich, I've known you. For decades, I've always seen you as this high-energy, passionate man about this space. Where do you get that passion from? Who do you look to, inside or outside of our industry, that sort of renews you, refreshes you, keeps you on spot on this these topics? Right. Um, you know, I tend to look to some of the folks who who have a lot of time and grade here, but people I, I really respect, and I mentioned Teresa Torres, but John Cutler is somebody really smart. He thinks how he thinks a lot about how organizations actually behave. Scott Selhorst is somebody who really understands this sort of inner system stuff. Uh, yes. I think Jason Knight is doing a huge service to the community by getting the word out. There's a buddy of mine who's on the engineering side named Ron Lichty, who's he's a smoke jumper VP engineering. Okay. Which, gosh, you think product's hard, right? I wouldn't want to do that, Joe. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, Steve Johnson and I have been around the block for a really long right. time. You know, I, I tend to be looking to the to the, some of the gray-haired ones here. There's, but there's an awful lot of really great folks coming up, particularly on the B to C side, who really understand growth marketing, who really understand A/B testing and science. Hester, uh, Holly Hester Riley, is there. There's some other folks who who are the up and comers in really getting out ahead. Rich, I appreciate you sharing some time with us. And I especially appreciate the insight, the depth, the, the, the piffiness of how you articulate some of the most meaningful problems we confront. If somebody want to get, a t- get in touch, with you, they wanted to know more about how to take advantage of your expertise or just grab some cycles with you because it's a good exchange to talk to you. How would they do that? What do you recommend? Well, cleverly, there's this thing called email. Yes. And my email is my name. It's rich at Miranov.com, which, by the way, has an O in the middle, not an A. Everybody wants to misspell it. And then also cleverly, I have a website at Miranov.com that has 22 years of blog posts and talks and tools and videos and stuff, which is free. Um, so so those are those are the favorite channels for me, old school. Okay. All right. Sounds great. Rich, thank you. Appreciate you stopping by. Appreciate you giving us some time. This has been a great session. And to the listeners out there, I want to thank you for listening. This has been Go to Market Disrupted. And again, I say this every time, we welcome your downloads, your reviews, your likes, your criticisms. We take that feedback seriously. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care. Bye for now.
Thank you for listening. To learn more about Egress Solutions, head on over to www.egresssolutions.net.